Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hollywood is absolutely no stranger to scandal. And by now, we've heard it all. Many think our Hollywood stars are the most depraved on earth. Long gone are the days of ever-classy Rita Hayworth, beautiful but tragic Marilyn Monroe, and the classic masculinity of men like Cary Grant and Gregory Peck. Of course, people completely romanticise the old Hollywood days, because we know now these movie stars were no angels. But have you ever heard the stories of Hollywood's real golden age, when movies had no sound but their stars were deranged, delusional, thrill-seeking hooligans who had access to pre-crash money and a world that encouraged a bacchanalian approach to life rather than a wholesome one? This is the story of Hollywood Babylon. Hollywood Babylon is one of my favorite books. It's written by our good friend, Kenneth Anger. Do you remember him from our episode about Jimmy Page? Well, he's making a return. And it's a semi-fictional, semi-factual, but definitely sensationalized historical fiction of Hollywood's sordid history. And let me tell you, it's juicy. This book, when I was reading it, I my mouth was... Jaw on the floor. I was just leafing through the pages non-stop. It's that good. Now, Kenneth Anger grew up in Hollywood and he was a child star himself, which a lot of people don't know. He entered Hollywood in 1937 when he was only seven years old and he starred in his first film when he was 10. From here on, he was immersed in Hollywood life, going to Beverly Hills High and hanging out with A-list child stars and children of the stars. Presumably, this is where he soaked up all the gossip and kept on to it until he wrote this book. He wrote Hollywood Babylon when he was in need of some money. So he and a ghostwriter collected all the gossip that he had heard over the years in the industry and put it into this salacious novel. It was published first in France, but a pirated version reared its head in 1965 in the US, and it was officially published in America in 1974. Gloria Swanson filed a libel lawsuit against Kenneth Anger and ever the troll, he sent her a foot-long sugar-filled coffin with Here Lies Gloria painted on the lid. He took no prisoners. Today, we are revisiting my series of dark Hollywood history and deep diving into Kenneth Anger's cult classic that recently inspired the Oscar-nominated film Babylon, starring Margot Robbie and Brad Pitt. Let's get into it. 
first we're going to do a little TLDR on how Hollywood became Tinseltown. So the first house in Hollywood is built in 1853 on a site near Los Angeles, then a small city in the state of California. Hollywood was laid out as a real estate subdivision in 1887 by a man called Harvey Wilcox, who was a prohibitionist from Kansas, who envisioned a community based on his sober religious principles. Oh, how wrong he was. <laughs> At the turn of the 20th century, a real estate magnate called H.J. Whiteley was responsible for bringing the telephone, the electricity and gas lines into the new suburb of Hollywood. It became the center of the movie industry because American inventor Thomas Edison had control of the patents for the cameras and film that movie makers needed. He basically gatekept them from the industry. Now, he was based in New Jersey and kept a tight control on the industry and actively stamped out competition for those who sought to evade his patent rights and wanted to invent something a little new. Because they were so far away from Edison and this was the age beyond, you know, accessible telephones and never mind the internet, it was pretty easy for innovators to operate on the West Coast in Hollywood. The weather in California was also amazing for filmmaking and they were close to the desert, the sea, even mountains. So filming Westerns that were so popular at the time was very easy and any other film could kind of be made here. It made perfect sense. The first film completed in Hollywood was 1908's The Count of Monte Cristo, and the first film made entirely in Hollywood was a short film in 1910 titled In Old California. By 1911, the first movie studio appeared on Sunset Boulevard, and by 1915, many major motion picture companies had relocated to Hollywood from the East Coast, and the rest was history. So let's take a look at some of the wildest stories from Hollywood's baby years and the golden era. I mean, we have everything from orgies, prohibition parties, breakdowns, tragic suicides, and lots more. Remember, most of these stories are told in Hollywood Babylon. I have found extra nuggets sprinkled across the internet, but these stories are by no means fact, and you should take them with a pinch of salt. But good God, are they juicy. In 1922, a list of names was compiled by a man called Will Hayes. And these names reflected who, in the movie industry, he felt were unsafe to work with. This was the original cancel culture. You might think, okay, who are these guys? Just another hater with an opinion? Or does he have some sort of power in the industry? And you'd be right. This guy was being paid to be a hater. See, Will Hayes oversaw something called the Motion Picture Production Code, informally known as the Hayes Code. And this spelled out a set of moral guidelines for the self-censorship of content in American cinema. Between 1919 and 1922, there were a series of Hollywood scandals that absolutely shook the nation. Before this, actors were seen as gods of the screen, those who could do no wrong. They were mysterious and played out the characters that everyone loved to see, but the public knew little about their private lives. This obviously does not mean that stars were innocent anything but. In fact, our good friend Alistair Crowley passed through Hollywood on his travels and remarked on its stars as cocaine-crazed sexual lunatics. 
When an actress called Olive Thomas was found dead in Paris, everything changed. Olive was a massive star and a socialite, and she was found dead by suicide, seemingly after taking medication registered in her husband's name, Jack Pickford, also a massive star and massive opium addict. This shook the core of the nation because the couple were said to be the perfect couple, but her suicide exposed a double life. Turns out she was in Paris on the hunt for opium. Shock number one. The opium, it turns out, was for Jack, who was hopelessly addicted. Shock number two. And apparently her failure to do so and the fears of the ramifications of turning up empty-handed to Jack were what drove her to suicide. Shock number three. Then we have the Fatty Arbuckle incident. Fatty was a huge comic actor at the time. He was arrested for the rape and murder of a young actress called Virginia Rappe. This was a massive scandal as Fatty was seen as a lovable fool, but now he's apparently assaulting and killing young starlets. This also exposed lavish parties that the stars were having because this happened while dozens of people were partying for days in Fatty's hotel suite. Remember also, this is in the height of prohibition, so none of this was supposed to be happening. Hollywood needed to be cleaned up. And that's when they brought Will Hayes in and he created the Hayes Code, the hater-ass bitch code. (laughs) The Hayes Code decided who deserved to work and who didn't. And it enforced this with an iron fist on what could and could not be shown on the silver screen. So one of the names on the list was a young actor and a family man called Wally Reed. When this list was sent to the movie executive Adolf Zucker of Paramount, he kind of shit himself. Wally was one of the biggest stars and he made him lots of money. He resisted this list at first, but ultimately after a leak to the tabloids, Wally was outed as an addict and he got sent to a sanitarium in 1922. So who was Wally Reed? Wally came from a long line of showbiz professionals, as did a lot of actors who broke into the movie business. His mother and father were entertainers, and he appeared in his first film in 1910. He starred in many films alongside his father, and he married another star called Dorothy Davenport in 1913. He was known as Good Time Wally, the epitome of the all-American man. When Wally was first put into the asylum, there were rumours as to why, but his wife soon confirmed that it was to treat a morphine addiction. The official story was that after an accident on set rendered him injured, Wally was given morphine for the pain, which ended up in an unfortunate addiction. Will Hayes said of Wally, the unfortunate Mr. Reed should be dealt with as a diseased person, not to be censored, shunned, and that is what happened Wally. Wally was locked up in a padded cell for all of 1922. He was denied any morphine, as was the best practice at the time. This shocked his system so much, quite frankly, he lost his mind and had a nervous breakdown. Wally grew furious as the studio who worked him to the bone over the years previously were nowhere to be seen to help him. They were really keeping him locked up and locked away, if anything, out of sight, out of mind. Wally began using morphine to get through the grueling days on set, film after film that was demanded by him, as was demanded by a lot of actors at this time. By the tail end of his career, it was said he was quite literally propped 
up so that they could film the final scenes of the 1922 film Clarence. Wally's story does not end well. He died in the sanitarium in 1923. He was only 30 years old. Will Hayes continues on his crusade to make Hollywood moral again, although arguably it had never been, which caused much frustration to the public and to movie makers. Movie goers went to the movies for escapism when they wanted to see their favorite stars get up to all sorts of shenanigans, whereas movie makers felt that movies should reflect real life and real life wasn't squeaky clean. Because of all this concern around morality, movie stars kept their hijinks hidden. Before they partied in hotel suites, this soon became too public and too likely for leaks to happen. Now the stars retired to their lavish villas. They kept most of the scandal out of the papers, but of course there were still leaks. The New York Journal said, When people spring from poverty to affluence within a few weeks, their mental equipment is not always equal to the strain. They have money, an unaccustomed toy, and they spend it in bizarre ways. They may have wild parties or they may indulge in other forms of relaxation and excitement. The story of Wally Reed didn't result in a downturn of dope fiends in Hollywood, though. Since these were the years of prohibition, it was sometimes easier for actors and actresses to get their hands on pills rather than booze. Although, really, the stars yearned for neither, with parties flooded with both and every star allegedly having an in-house dealer of booze and pills. The story of Alma Rubens is one of those where fact is stranger than fiction. Her personal life is much more colourful than the sirens she played on screen. In 1929, she was seen running down Hollywood Boulevard, screaming that she was being kidnapped, all the while throwing pieces of her clothing into the gutter. She went to a nearby gas station and got into an altercation with the two men who were following her, stabbing one of them. She was whisked away in an ambulance. It turned out the older man was her doctor and he had arrived to her house to institutionalise her just like Wally. And just like Wally, she was hopelessly addicted to dope. She was sent home with a nurse and after she tried to attack the nurse with a knife, she was then sent to a psych ward. Six months later, she got divorced and arrested in 1931 for possession of morphine, sewn into the seams of her clothes. All of a sudden, her throwing away her clothes in the gutters makes sense. She was diagnosed as seriously ill and put into the care of her mother. While she was dying, she did an interview with the LA Examiner, where she spoke to how she ended up addicted to morphine. She said, I only went to professional men to seek help for my pain. When they started giving me this horrible poison, I did not know what it was. One even laughed when I said I craved the drug and said, don't be afraid, you won't need it anymore once you're well. She said she was kept on it as long as her money was good, and soon she was secretly and completely addicted to something she didn't even fully understand. She died at 33 in 1931. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're 
you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hollywood stars have always had scandalous love affairs and been adored for their stunning looks. The story of Rudy Valentino has it all. Sex, lies, and love triangles. And of course, dramatic deaths. Rudolph Valentino was an Italian actor based in the US and nicknamed the Latin lover because of his gorgeous looks. He was quite the sex symbol. He seemed to be the 1920s example of masculine beauty built for the female gaze. It was said that men would often storm out of the theatre in disgust of Valentino because he was kind of feminine in his presentation, but women loved him. One man asked in a street interview in 1922 what he thought of Valentino, and he replied, Many other men desire to be Douglas Fairbanks, but Valentino, I wonder. Women in the same interview found Valentino triumphantly seductive. He puts the lovemaking of the average husband or sweetheart into discard as tame, flat and unimpassioned. This caused the press to do what they do best and prey upon Valentino's insecurities or create insecurities where there wasn't any, constantly bringing his masculinity and in some instances his sexuality into question. They blamed him for the emasculation of the American man. The Chicago Tribune titled one article Pink Powder Puffs, saying that men like Valentino are to blame for Chicago ballrooms having coin-operated powder puffs for men operating in their bathrooms. Sounds like we've been having the same old arguments for decades now. Rudy was known for his extravagant tastes. He was always dripping in gold, wore chinchilla fur and expensive perfumes. But something that haunted him were the rumours surrounding his failed marriages. It seemed that Valentino, despite being the sexiest man alive, had the worst gaydar on earth and only married lesbians. (laughs) First, Valentino impulsively married actress Jane Acker in 1919. At the time, she was involved with actresses Grace Darmond and a woman called Ala Natsumova. More about her later. Now, Acker became involved with Valentino to hide her sexuality and to remove herself from this lesbian love triangle, which had become toxic. But on their wedding night, she had a spot of buyer's remorse and she locked Valentino out of their room on their wedding night. Their marriage was never consummated and they soon divorced. Then there was his marriage to Natasha Rambova, who he married before his divorce was even final. Natasha was a protege of Alan Natsumova. Yes, the same Alan Natsumova. Not that you would think there are two. 
It wasn't exactly a common name at the time. She actually introduced Valentino to both women. Many speculate she was used to stage such marriages. Rambova and Valentino's marriage ended allegedly unconsummated as well, and very bitterly in 1925. When he died, Valentino only left her one dollar in his will. You'd prefer nothing really, wouldn't you? (laughs) Rudolf Valentino died in 1926 after complications of recent surgeries gave him sepsis. The country went into mourning and panic and, quite frankly, mass hysteria. Two women attempted suicide in front of the hospital where he died. Rumours of one girl poisoning herself while clutching a picture of Rudy Valentino circulated. A young man in Paris was allegedly found dead in bed, covered in hundreds of photos of the stars. 10,000 people lined the streets of Manhattan to pay their respects at his funeral. And Polish actress Pola Negri claimed to be Valentino's fiancé and collapsed in hysterics while standing over his coffin. So let's get back to Miss Natsimova because she is fascinating. She was a Russian-American actress, director, producer, and screenwriter who was openly bisexual. That's what they say everywhere. I would argue she was fully gay, but her queerness was probably being minimized or just not taken very seriously as a woman, as always happens to queer women. I would argue this because she openly conducted relationships with women while being married to a man. She did not, as far as I could tell, conduct many affairs, if any, with any other men. It was just women. She was involved in this lavender marriage between 1912 and 1925 to a man called Charles Bryant. She founded a place she nicknamed the Garden of Allah. It started out as a lavish mansion and it was sold to Natsimova in 1919 who immediately commissioned a state-of-the-art swimming pool shaped like the Black Sea, which actually ended up being the biggest pool in Hollywood at the time. Natsimova had numerous affairs with women and the Garden of Allah became known as one of the few places in Hollywood where lesbian and bisexual women could express their sexuality openly. The list of those Natsimova is confirmed to have been involved with romantically includes actress Eva Lee Gallienne, film director Dorothy Artsner, writer Mercedes de Acosta and Oscar Wilde's niece Dolly Wilde among many other rumoured affairs. She was quite the playboy. Natsimova apparently was who coined the phrase sewing circle to refer to a group of closeted actresses. In 1926, she turned the garden into a hotel. Since it was already notorious for its outlandish parties, the garden was now a place where the elite Hollywood stars who wanted to let their hair down could, all away from the public and the reporters. Marlene Dietrich, Humphrey Bogart, Errol Flynn, Orson Welles, Laurence Olivier, John Barrymore, that's Drew Barrymore's granddaddy, I believe, Greta Garbo, and many more were devotees of the garden. F. Scott Fitzgerald stayed there too, albeit years after he published The Great Gatsby, but the parties, they seemed very Gatsby-esque. Time magazine wrote in 1959, as the Garden of Allah was closing its doors, Through the intoxicating 20s and 30s, the Garden of Allah was more house party than hotel. Robert Benchley was resident clown. John Barrymore kept a bicycle there so as not to waste drinking time walking between separate celebrations in the sprawling Spanish villas. Walcott, Hemingway, Bryce, Flynn, Olivier, Wells, Bogart, Dietrich all lived at the Garden during its green years. 
The original It Girl, Clara Bow, who Margot Robbie's character in the movie Babylon is partially based on, if you've seen it, she was a notorious party girl and a regular at the garden. Rumor has it, Clara Bow would occasionally dive off the high board in a dinner gown, martini in hand. She made the evening dress swimming parties of the garden's lore. Her hijinks at the garden were so notorious that it fueled the already bubbling rumours around her sex life. In 1931, a tabloid called The Coast Reporter published a scathing article accusing Clara of a Rolodex of depravities like exhibitionism, incest, lesbianism, bestiality, drug addiction, alcoholism, and having contracted several venereal diseases. I love them lumping all of them into the one category as well bizarre. The publisher of that tabloid then tried to blackmail Clara Bow. He said he wouldn't print it if she paid him 25 grand, which led to his arrest by federal agents and later an eight-year prison sentence. Serves him right. If there's anything we found out in our deep dive into the dark side of Hollywood, it's that fame and mental illness go hand in hand. It's only in the last few years where we seem to be getting a better understanding of it. But within the context of Hollywood, unfortunately, there had to be a lot of victims before we started to question whether dehumanizing people publicly week on week in the press is conductive to their mental health or not. Apparently it's not. As you can imagine, in Hollywood's golden era, there were many, many victims. One of the most famous has to be Peg Antwistle, who tragically threw herself off the H on the Hollywood land sign in September 1932 at the age of 24. On September 18th, a woman was hiking below the Hollywood land sign and she found a woman's shoe, a purse and a jacket. She opened the purse and found a suicide note, after which she looked down the mountain and saw the body of a woman below. Peg remained unidentified until her uncle, who she'd been living with, identified her remains. He said that on Friday the 16th of September, she told him she was going out for a walk to the drugstore and to see some friends. The suicide note was published in the papers and it read, I am afraid I am a coward. I am sorry for everything. If I had done this a long time ago, it would have saved a lot of pain. P.E. Now, Frances Farmer was probably one of the most tragic victims of the Hollywood machine. Her story broke my heart when I read it. She was a stage actress who made her Hollywood debut in 1936 and had a string of successful films throughout the decade. She was a serious actress and classically trained, but did not make many friends in Hollywood. Allegedly, she refused to go Hollywood and made enemies out of some of the high-level executives who pulled all of the strings in Hollywood. She was arrested in 1942 over a seemingly innocuous traffic violation. She was driving drunk without a license, and yes, from everything I've read, drunk driving was Pretty standard back then, especially in LA. But Francis was a proud cop hater and apparently shouted and screamed insults to the police officer who was attempting to arrest her. This landed her in a night in jail and put her on parole. Now, she broke her parole by not reporting to her officer and was arrested again. She failed to report to the parole officer because she was on a bender, which resulted in her dislocating a hairdresser's jaw losing her jumper during a bar fight and streaking down Sunset Boulevard. The rumor goes that upon her arrest, she wrote cocksucker as her occupation on the arrest sheet. All jokes aside, what an icon. When the judge questioned her on her drinking, she said, listen, I put liquor in my milk. I put liquor in my coffee and in my orange juice. What do you want me to do? Starve to death? 
I drink everything I can, including Benzedrine. She was sentenced to 180 days in jail. They called her mother, who claimed it was all an act. Frances was a method actor after all. Her mother was not an ally though. And she got Frances out of jail and put her into an institution where she was diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia. After a while in private institution, she was then quietly transferred to the horrific state-run mental asylum, where she endured insulin therapy. Now, insulin therapy is where patients were forced into a daily insulin coma. No comment. In a 1958 television interview by Ralph Edwards on his This Is Your Life program, Frances recalled her experience. In Hollywood, your friends blame you for the breakup of your marriage. Up in Seattle, your family too say the fault is yours. Your nerves are stretched tight, almost to the breaking point. On the sound stages, your brilliant mind fails you now and you become more and more uncooperative, less and less competent. Resentment against you mounts in all quarters until... No more parts are offered you. In loneliness and despair, you turn to drink to blot out the raging conflicts of your mind. In October of 1942, you're picked up for drunk driving in Santa Monica and are placed on probation. When you break that probation only two months later, you react violently to being put in jail. You're completely without funds, so your family comes to your side and psychological tests indicate that you're suffering from schizophrenia, hallucinations, fantastic delusions, and disorganized emotions. So instead of being an alcoholic, as was so widely thought, you were actually seriously ill mentally. Well, you know, I didn't think then, and I still don't, that I was actually sick, but there were so many people who, who seemed to think I was mentally ill that I just had to find out why and, and find out whether it was my fault, what was happening. You know, if you get treated like a patient, why, you have to act like one. And uh, these things just pushed me a little too far, and uh, it led to conflicts and strife with my mother. Well, Ralph, it was very much like anyone else is, is admitted to a, a public institution. Uh, they don't have means for uh, individual psychiatric care. There's only so many beds available. I stood in line with uh, 15 or 20 girls, uh, like myself, in the hospital, for one reason or another, we received shots or hydrotherapy baths or electric shock treatments, and this was supposed to relax the tensions and keep us quiet, which it did. I don't blame the hospital at all. I think they did everything in their power to uh, take care of the enormous number of people they had, but I really don't think it, it, it helped me much. Frances went on to get out of the institutions, out of her conservatorship her mother held over her, and she ended up marrying. She took care of her parents at the end of their lives, despite them not caring much for her life at all, and she made a small comeback in the 50s and continued acting into the 60s. In 1978, William Arnold published an account of Frances Farmer's life titled Shadowland, which asserted that while institutionalized, she was subject to a lobotomy. Now, not as publicized as this story is the fact that Arnold later sued Brooks Films and admitted in court that his account, lobotomy story included, was entirely fictionalized. She died in 1970 of esophageal cancer. She was only 56 years old. So guys, that is all the time we have today. Let me know if you liked this story of dark Hollywood and old Hollywood. I would really recommend you read um, Hollywood Babylon if you haven't already. It is a fascinating book. Kenneth Anger is such a fascinating guy. I would love to do a whole series on him. He is, as I said, 
beyond fascinating and has lived such a crazy life. But I will be back next week for another episode of Red Room Revisits. Make sure you follow and subscribe. And I'll see you all very soon. Bye. And do I need you? Oh my, do I? Honey, honey, do I do?